OMG. <laughs> uh, this first appeared actually in 1917 in a letter written by an admiral to Winston Churchill. Um, it's now a popular abbreviation for Oh My God. Um, and if you hear those words, those three words, Oh My God, or the abbreviation OMG, um, depending on how you say it, it can mean something radically different. And anyway, it's an expression of something. But if I were to say, Oh My God, or Oh My God, radically different. And this, this expression is profoundly versatile. It's an expression of joy, despair, relief, dread, excitement, fear, astonishment, disbelief, approval, frustration, and more. Just these three words, oh, my, and God. But here's the thing. While it can be so many things, so often when I hear it, the last thing that I think that it actually is, is a real genuine communication to the God of the cosmos. Is it actually an address of Yahweh, the one true God? I am that I am, the one who created all things and is sustaining all things. Most likely not. And that begs the question, why is it so much easier to talk about God than to talk to God? Why is that? It's so much easier to talk about God than to God, and that is what I want us to wrestle with today. Uh, we're in our series called Devoted, where for a few weeks we're spending some time looking at the early church and what uh, Luke recorded in the book of Acts, what the early church devoted themselves to. So if you have your copy of scripture, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We will again start with verse 42. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Luke is describing the early church, and this is what he says, starting in verse 42. They, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What should we devote ourselves to as a church? And we see the beauty of this. This is what the early church devoted themselves to, and so we too want to devote ourselves to this. And so we start with the apostles' teaching, and then to the fellowship, and then we have these subsets, that in fellowship we have the breaking of bread, we have the Lord's Supper, that we come together and we eat and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, but now the second part of that subset is prayer. But today I would like for us to explore what does it mean to devote ourselves to prayer. And to do that, I want us to track with me. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. But if we go through the entirety of the book of Acts, this history of the early church, as the Spirit of God is advancing the gospel across the nations, every time that prayer is brought up, join with me. Chapter 1 awaiting the Spirit, because Jesus has ascended and he said before he ascended, Wait for me in Jerusalem, I'm sending the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so while awaiting the Spirit, it says they were continually united in prayer. And so in the waiting, we're praying. Chapter 3, Peter and John, two apostles, they come towards the temple for a set time of prayer where at the gate beautiful, they see a beggar who they heal. Chapter 4, after John and Peter have preached, because everyone has come together and said, what is this? It's power. And now they've preached the gospel. They've been arrested. They've been threatened and they've been released. And what does the church do? It gathers together and prays for more boldness. And it says that the place shook as they were filled with the Spirit. And now let me tell you, I work in an office on Montrose Street here downtown. 
There's been some construction outside the building. I spent a lot of time in there in prayer, and the building has been shaking. And it's amazing and terrifying. It's kind of cool. I don't think that's what was happening here. Chapter 7, we keep going. Stephen, a martyr, he's dying. He's praying for the forgiveness of those killing him as he breathes his last breaths. Chapter 8, Peter and John pray that the Samaritans would receive the Spirit. These are people the Jews, Peter and John, namely, would have hated at one point. Chapter 9, the recently converted Saul, who we know as Paul later in his Gentile name, is found praying by Ananias, like God showed him in a vision so that he could be healed. Chapter 9, Peter is praying, and Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, is raised from the dead. Chapter 10 finds Cornelius, who is a Gentile. He's praying and being shown how to find salvation. And Peter is also praying elsewhere and being shown not to reject the Gentiles, like Cornelius, so that he can then show them salvation. Chapter 12, Peter is imprisoned. The church is praying for him. An angel comes, delivers Peter from prison, takes him to the house where the church is gathered, still praying for his release, and they can't believe it. The girl at the gate is like, it's his ghost. This is terrifying. Chapter 13, Saul and Barnabas are set apart and commissioned to take the gospel abroad through fasting and prayer. Chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, this church planting ministry they take on from city to city is summed up by saying that they preached the gospel in each town and appointed elders or leadership, pastors in every church with prayer and fasting. Chapter 16, Paul and company find Lydia, a wealthy lady who becomes a believer outside of the city by a river because they were looking for a place of prayer. Chapter 16, Paul and Silas are praying and singing to God in jail when God supernaturally frees them leading to the jailer and his whole family coming to faith. Chapter 20, Paul gives an emotional final farewell to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he kneels to pray with them one last time. Chapter 21, Paul and company meet the believers of Tyre to kneel on the beach and pray as they say farewell. Chapter 27, Paul, a prisoner in transit to Rome, prays thanksgiving to God as the ship that has been storm-tossed for 14 days now settles and he says, let's eat. Everyone is starving after four days, but he takes a moment to pray thanksgiving to God in the presence of all of the crew. Then chapter 28, closing out this chapter, Paul prays for the healing of Publius's dying father on Malta and they arrive in chapter 28. He's praying again, thanksgiving to God, and he takes courage when he finally sees the believers at the end of the ship voyage. And the book closes out. From start to finish, You cannot see the activity of the church. You cannot see the gospel advancing aside from prayer. We must be a people devoted to prayer. But we'll start with a question. What is prayer? What is prayer? I personally love John Bunyan. He was an old Puritan. I love his definition of prayer. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ and in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. I read that again, because there's so much packed into it. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart and soul to God, through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. This is what prayer is. I would encourage you to go back to a sermon we preached a couple months ago called I Do, We Do, You Do. Um, But in this, I unpacked what prayer is and I summarized it by saying it's position, it's the gospel, it's our position with God, it's posture, that we come in alignment with God, it's communication as we make intercession and petition to God, but then it's just communion, it's enjoyment of God. 
And so prayer is all these things. And yet as we look at what the text says today, as the Spirit spoke through Luke who recorded this, we say, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and then these subsets, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Prayer is fellowship. Prayer is fellowship with God. And that is the heart of the gospel, is that God has saved us, us, wretched sinners, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. We rebelled against God. And then we continue to do this daily. That in so many ways, I live like I am God, that I will decide for myself, and you do this too. We don't miss the, we, we do miss the mark of God. We fall short of that. We see in the law that we are broken. We cannot uphold it. We are sinful. And there is just consequences for that. That the very wrath of God is due on us. And yet the good news is that God in grace says, I still love you. I've chosen you. And so I'm making a way. And he made a way. The way is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came, took on humanity. God the Son, eternal. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He took on human flesh in the incarnation. He put meat on. And he lived a sinless life. He fully obeyed the law. He fulfilled all of the prophecies. He died in our place. The final perfect sacrifice that all of the temple system was pointing to, that blood must be shed to atone for your sins, to cover your sins, and now the Lamb of God, Jesus, has been slain. His blood covers us, those of us who are with him, united with him in faith. And so his call is to turn from your sin, repent, turn to God, trusting him, confessing him to be Lord. He is the Savior. He's mighty to save. He died and he rose again so that we could have everlasting life with him. God saves us largely from God, his wrath, so that we would be with God because he loves us and he wants to be with us because he wants fellowship with you, that he wants you to enjoy him and he enjoys you. What a beautiful thing. And it's not because you're just enjoyable in and of yourself, but because he has made you enjoyable. He delights in us because he made us delightful through the Son. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is our fellowship with God. And so prayer is fellowship with God. It's just being in that relationship with him. It's being mindful of that. It's enjoying that. It's coming and petitioning him because of that. Because we are in a right relationship with God, we can talk to him. We can listen to him. We can have fellowship with him. We can have deep, abiding love. But fellowship is also with each other. So remember the context. Together, They devote themselves to these things, to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And you think about all of the times that I read um, the summary of going through the whole book of Acts of prayer. How often was that done alone? Well, it wasn't. Every single time, it somehow, even if it started alone, it brought them together with someone else. And you think of Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer when his disciples, clearly something stood out about the way that Jesus would pray and they could hear him praying. They said, hey, teach us how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father, do you know it? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive me for my King James. But you know this? Listen to all the pronouns in that. Our Father, give us our daily bread. It's all this plural possessive. That it's together that we pray. We pray together. This is fellowship. Together in fellowship with each other, we pray together. 
But to see that in the context of this, you hear that over and over and over. And so allow me to be straightforward for a moment. We must pray together more as a church. We must pray together more as a church. Together, pray alone, absolutely, but pray together more. Let's pray more and more together. Prayer is fellowship. So what is prayer? It is fellowship. But there's a bigger question that I want to spend most of our time on today. If we have a base understanding of what prayer is, the real question we need to wrestle with, you remember that whole idea of it's easier to talk about God than to God? Why? is it so hard to pray? Why do we not pray more? Why is it a struggle to devote ourselves to prayer? Why is this so difficult? And so I have three things that I want to share with you. This list is not exhaustive, but as I think about it, these are kind of three top of mind as I think of my own life and yours um, as I encounter just believers in general. So the first one, reasons we do not pray more. We struggle to devote ourselves to prayer. Reason number one is disbelief in the power. It's disbelief in the power of prayer. And when you disbelieve in the power of prayer, what you're actually doubting is the power of God. Because prayer is petitioning the power of God. It's, it's a personal, it's a relational thing that we're asking God to move in a way that only he can. And so if we disbelieve in the power of God, we will struggle to fail. Or we will struggle and fail to pray. So we, remember, we've already established that we are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. So hear what the apostles have to say about prayer. And this is not exhaustive either. Um, but James 5 James says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Or John in 1 John chapter 5, he says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. And then James again in chapter 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Do we pray believing that there's power behind this? There's power in the God that we are talking to. The God is all-powerful. You do not have because you do not ask. We must ask if we want to have. And we must ask with faith, knowing there is real power here because God is all-powerful. And there is power here. And, and here's the beauty of this. Prayer is the most subversive thing you can possibly do because prayer, this subversive behavior, is being mindful of a reality that's hidden from most, that we're tapping into this reality and we're affecting change in both worlds, the spiritual world and the material world. That is what we're doing in prayer, is there's this collision of these realms coming together and the power of God being sought after and then being responded with God saying, yes! So why would we not do that all the more? It's because we struggle to believe that it actually has that kind of power. But it does. It does. God is that powerful. Um, one of our dear sisters in Christ, she called me this week, and I know she prays fervently so much. And I admire her. I respect her so much. I look up to her so much because of how much she prays. And it's beautiful the number of times that various people in this church have told me about moments where she has talked to them and said things that were just so needed and encouraging. Always at the heart of it is that she's praying. But she calls me this week and she's telling me about some dear friends who, who live a bit away, but not too far. And, and one of the friends has received some hard news. And she has shared the gospel with this friend before. And she's asking, will you pray with me? Because she wrote a letter and she expected it to be delivered that day. And in that letter, she shared the gospel again. And do you know why she's asking me to pray with her? Because she believes that there's power in prayer. Because there's power in the God that we're praying to. 
And that, I can't tell you how much good that does to my heart. Let's do that with each other constantly. Invite each other into praying for things because it really does change things. That in the sovereign will of God and the sovereign decrees, the eternal decrees that God is omniscient, he knows everything past, present, and future. Yet in that power, he has said, you will affect real change by praying. That we cannot be fatalistic, even if things are determined. They're determined based, Jesus says, and God has told us throughout scripture that your prayers will affect real change that does not compromise his sovereignty. It actually beautifully points to it. And so we pray knowing there's power there. We must believe. And now the next one, the second one that I think is kind of top of the list for us of why we don't pray more. And that is fear of silence or rejection. Do you know the hurt of hearing your whole life or for however long you have about a God who loves you and then you pour your heart out to that God because there's something that you know breaks his heart and you're begging, you're begging and it's quiet and nothing changes. Do you know that pain? I think you all do. Some of you much more profoundly than others. Why would God be silent? Why would God not answer our prayers? And this is a bit trivial, but even this week, one morning I had an early meeting with Pastor Tim and we were spending time together and he's telling me that at that point his, his head was just aching and just a couple days prior I woke up throwing up from a migraine and it's like, I feel you. And he's like, it's right now just kind of like an annoying kind of low-grade rumble in his head. And so as we close out our time together, we pray and I pray with all sincerity, believing, God, you, you brought my dead heart to life. And that kind of confidence, like, you can heal him. You can make his mind stop. You can make his brain stop hurting. And so I pray for his healing. And he drives half an hour home and sends me a text message that says, he got home and now it's a full-blown migraine. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I was like, that's not silence. That's just like blatantly the opposite of what I asked, God. It's like a, a few years ago where uh, my wife and I and, and my kids were, were out and about in town and we run into one of you. Um, actually, it's a couple, um, a married couple. And um, as we're talking, it's like, oh, where are your kids? And like, oh, I got babysitters and all stuff. And I made the statement like, that's so good that you get to spend some time together having fun without your kids. My son heard that. You know that? And weeks later, in an emotional, tearful moment, he says, do you and mommy not want me so that you can have fun? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? No. But, buddy, when you, when you hear something you don't understand that I say, or you see me do something that you don't understand, I want you to talk to me about it. Ask me what that is. Give me, give me an opportunity to explain this. And if you still can't understand, then buddy, look at my life. Look at the way that I consistently love you, that I have shown you that I will sacrifice, that I want you, that I enjoy you. Like, look at my life. And I make the connection here. And so often we're afraid to pray and we don't pray more because we fear the silence or the rejection of God. And it's kind of like us as little children hearing the small thing that we misunderstand. We think, oh, daddy doesn't love me. He doesn't want me. And all the while, God's saying, no. He sees the whole picture. His view is all-encompassing. 
And he's asking, would you look at the way that I've proven my love for you? Would you remember the gospel and know that God is for us? And we can trust him and know that he is good. We can confess that he is good even when things don't make sense to us. We know he is good. You can trust him. And so pray all the more. In your hurting, be like the psalmist. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Call him on it. He wants you to be honest with him. Pray all the more, even in our fear and the silence, the rejection that we think, know that it is not true. We know what is true. As he loves us, he is for us. He is altogether good. His faithful love endures forever. We can trust him. But this is hard. It is hard, and we should be honest about that. That when we don't get the answer we want or we get no answer at all, it hurts. We can be honest about that and realize we often don't know how we should pray. Because often we view this kind of like a walkie-talkie radio. That we're, we're calling in for the custodian to come clean up a mess. Is that not your prayer life? It's mine so much of the time. God, I need you to, I need you to step up right now because I made a mess of this or someone made a mess of this and I don't know what to do. Or maybe it's like a vending machine. You remember the gumball machine that I violently destroyed? I love that. Like we, we put our token in and now I get to pick what I want. God, I did my part. I put in my time. I've asked. And now, God, you in some way owe me. No, he, he is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He has all power and all knowledge. He knows what you need before you ask, Jesus said. He has the power to do whatever he wills. But he's a person. As we talk to him, knowing that this is a dynamic relationship, that we don't understand everything, but we come to him trusting him. We trust him. We know that he's good. And this is still difficult and mysterious. Paul said it was. In Romans 8, uh, Paul said, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. And God knows that so much so that God steps in. I'll pray for you the Spirit interceding for us, the Son before the throne of heaven, also interceding for us. Because so often we don't know what to pray. And so I'm telling you, even when it doesn't make sense, we step boldly into this wonderful mystery with the confidence of the gospel, knowing that God loves us. And here's the last one, the third one. Lack of focus. This may seem shallow, but I think it's just so true. How often do we sit down to pray or we stand up to pray or whatever we do, we start to pray And next thing you know, I'm thinking about everything but what I was supposed to be praying about. Start here, and mine castle, I'm in all these other rooms. Here's the game room. You guys check this. Like, it's just, it's difficult to stay focused. Like, where am I supposed to be? And here's the thing, and this this is not to, to lay guilt on you, but I think, I know this is true of me, but I think for you, if we are losing focus, it's because we're not actually beholding the God we're talking to. If we start with a view of God, our minds will be less prone to wander. When you see the grandeur, the glory of a God who made everything and his own creation rebels against him and he says, I still love you and I'm still so powerful that I'm gonna make this right. I'm that committed to you that his eye is set on me. I wanna gaze into his face forever. The idea of quorum Deo, his Latin, before the face of God, 
This is the beatific vision that the Puritans would always talk about, that the greatest thing that could ever happen is to just be with God face to face. Paul talked about it like in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that right now we see in part, like in a mirror dimly, like an old bronze mirror that's kind of hazy, and like you, you get a new one for Mother's Day every year, moms, but it's just, it gets all tarnished. You've got to polish it up, but even still, it's just like looking into one of these tiles that's been waxed. Like I can see myself, but it's not very good. But one day, face-to-face with God. And we long for that. We long for that. And so we focus on him because prayer is beholding. It's adoring God. It's being with him. It's communing with him. And so we have to ask, as he's conforming us to the image of the Son, one degree of glory to the next, what are you beholding? Because what we behold is going to be what we become. What do you set your gaze on? What is shaping you more than anything else? We must spend time just looking intently at God. Behold him. See him. Become like him. But enjoy being with him. In prayer, we need to focus on the person. Like, often we get so tripped up in prayer thinking like, oh, I'm just not one of those hyper-spiritual people who can pray so good because you're so fixated on prayer. Don't fixate on prayer. Fixate on God and just enjoy him. This is the way that Paul Miller, he wrote one of my favorite books on prayer called A Praying Life, but Paul Miller said this. Oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on prayer, not on God. Making prayer the center is like making conversation the center of a family mealtime. And prayer, focusing on the conversation, is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. It freezes us, making us unsure of where to go. Conversation is only the vehicle through which we experience one another. You know what that's like. You get in the car, you're driving, and suddenly you see that bug splatter on the windshield, and now you're looked at the windshield instead of the road. Whoa, okay, I got off course there. The windshield is just a medium through which you can see beyond the windshield safely. Prayer is the vehicle through which we see God. We look beyond prayer. We see focus on God, and you'll be so less distracted. We fix our eyes on him, We're praying to a person. It's communal. We get to be with him. So you step again boldly into this wonderful mystery with confidence, knowing he loves you. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, um, he famously opened his Holy Communion liturgy, if you know much of high church liturgy. But he, he says this in the opening prayer to the communion service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open and all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. We step into such an intimate moment, saying, this is who you are, God. You're almighty. You have all power. And I have nothing. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open. He knows every dark corner of my heart and yours. All desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Now here's the thing about that. That is either absolutely terrifying or it is wonderfully freeing. To come to God in prayer knowing you know every bit of me. You know what I'm going to ask before I ask it. So in this moment, I just get to spend it with you. Do you want to hear me? And God, I so desperately want to hear you. So let's be a church devoted to prayer like that.
Let's be a church devoted to prayer. Trust him. Talk to him. Spend crazy amounts of time with him. Just be with him. And I want to give you some opportunities to step into that more as a church because we've got to pray more together. Every Sunday, we ask our teams, kids ministry, production, worship, connect team, anyone serving here, at 9.30, stop whatever you're doing because there's nothing more important in this moment than for you to just talk to God. Pray together. Come join a team and pray with them at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Or come here. The seats are out at that point. Sit down and just pray. Just spend time with God. Or on Mondays, um, our church staff, which is just a few of us, our church staff and, and all of our elders are invited every Monday to fast. Um, some do a couple meals. Some do from dinner on Sunday night until dinner on Monday night. Some do sunrise to sunset. But we ask to fast. And we fast because we want to spend more time in desperate prayer, being driven and pushed more and more to God, dependent on him. And on Mondays, I'm inviting you into that too. Will you fast with us? Fast with us. And there's two things primarily that we ask on these days. One, a building. Because <laughs> that would be tremendously helpful for us as a church. And if you know anything about the real estate market, it's insane. And so we want God to move like only he can move. And so would you pray and ask God to give us a, a place to call home that could be like a base of operations for the search and rescue mission he's given us. And the other thing is monthly baptisms. I pray to God that every single month for the life of this church, we would baptize and celebrate the more people have put their faith in Christ. Would you step into those things with us? Pray together. In your home groups, make prayer a major part of it. In your discipline practicing partnerships, pray together a lot. Invite each other to pray about things and do that. I, I used to be really bad about, like, I'm going to be praying for you. I've learned a really simple way to stop lying when we say that. Is say, let's pray now. Let's pray. Whatever's going on around us, let's just stop and pray to the God who's present. Largely, if you want to grow in the discipline of prayer, if you want to grow in the enjoyment of prayer, you know what you need to do? You need to do it. You need to pray. Just start praying. Devote yourself to prayer. So let's be a church devoted to prayer. So, something I would like for us to do together now. Um, I keep a prayer journal. And in my prayer journal, I, I try to take walks daily and go down to a place that I enjoy. And I'll just write out a prayer. And it helps me um, to go throughout my day and be mindful of, like, what am I actually wrestling with today? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What are my questions? What are my requests? Um, you know, Paul says, pray without ceasing, which doesn't mean you're literally consciously saying words to God all day long, but that you're mindful of God, and that conversation with him just slips in and out naturally. But it helps me to know that at some point during the day, I'm going to write a prayer, and it's usually pretty succinct. But all day long, I'm thinking about what I'm going to write in that time that I get to enjoy with God. And this week, studying for this sermon, 
uh, preparing for, for this and praying for you as a church, that we would be a prayerful church. Uh, I had to ask myself the question, why don't I pray more? Like, Pastor Kevin, why doesn't Pastor Kevin pray more than he does? And I want to share my answers honestly as I ask God. In prayer, I ask God, why don't I pray more? Um, so if I'm honest, the answers to why I don't pray more is one, because I think that I or my problems don't matter enough. This is a big God. He's got a lot going on. And who am I to bother him? Or number two, I fear that I'm asking wrongly. James says, in the same context of saying that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, that you have not because you ask not, and you don't have because you ask wrongly that you spend it on your passions. And it's so easy for my mind to say everything that I'm asking for is wrong. Or I think that I only get so many requests, kind of like that blue genie. You get three. And this kind of karma idea that like, what do I, what do I deserve? Like, I can only ask for so much. Or lastly, this is hard because it's real intimacy. Like a real relationship with God that I love to perform I can make it happen. But in prayer, there's nothing that I can do. You want, you want to challenge me on fasting, on serving, on giving, on whatever? Like, let's go. But prayer is just me and God. Where I have to be real with him. And that's so much harder to just be instead of do. That's hard. And as I pray this, and I honestly confess these things to God as he helps me to discern what's actually true in my heart. I sit and I listen and I ask him, what do you say to that? And as I say that I think I or my problems don't matter enough, he reminds me of a guy named David who became such an amazing king, a man after God's own heart. Like, oh yeah, well that's clearly not me. <laughs> I'm nowhere near that prominent or important. I think, how was he chosen? He was the runt of his brothers. He was the last one to come when Samuel came to anoint him as king. That Jesse, David's dad, didn't even bring him in from keeping the sheep because he thought there was no chance this prophet was looking for this guy. I see my savior, who would not be someone who was highly esteemed, Nothing about his appearance was magnificent. Just a humble carpenter, a homeless rabbi walking around, and yet all the glory of God in him. The way of the kingdom is upside down. And there's a God who says, no, I formed you in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, that he sees me and he cares about me at the same time that he sees every other person on this planet and cares about them. This is intimacy. When I fear that I'm asking wrongly, I'm reminded by God that this is a throne of grace. And so you come here with confidence that you never deserve to be here, but you come here by the blood of Jesus. So don't be afraid of asking wrongly. You're only here because of grace. So come and ask and I think that I only get so many chances that I don't want to waste them. And I'm reminded that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him give us everything? There is no end to the generosity of God. 
There's no end to it, so I'll just ask all the more. And the struggle of real intimacy and not being something that I can just do or perform. I join the psalmist in saying, who do I have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That I want to be here with him, the God who sees me through and through and invites me to commune with him. So I want you to spend some time praying. And before we take communion or we sing, I would invite you to pray. And as we do that, um, let's start with just physically posturing yourself. And this can be a weird thing. I grew up in a context where anything expressive was very bad. Um, like you, you didn't want to draw attention to yourself or anything. So raising your hands or kneeling, lying on the floor, anything like that would be frowned upon because that's, that's just not okay. You're drawing attention to yourself. And yet in that same context, and not to speak ill of them, we had to remove our hats coming inside or at a time of prayer. That's the same thing. That we all, in various ways, will demonstrate through our posture respect and preparation. And so, posture yourself. And nobody's judging you. If you want to lay down, lay down. If you want to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you want to simply bow your head or raise your eyes, whatever you want to do, posture yourself. But if you don't know where to start, I would invite you to join me. One of my favorite ways to pray is just like this. Open your hands, palm up, and let them rest on your legs. Close your eyes and let your shoulders fall. And just sit and calm your heart. Focus on God. So we start with a view of God and why we can even be here. As Bunyan said, it's sincere. We come here meaningless. There's a God in view who is more beautiful than anything you have ever imagined. The most glorious sunset. The most powerful machine. He's more powerful. He's more beautiful. He's more. He's altogether more. And you get to sit with him. And now ask. And sincerely mean it. Why don't I pray more, God? And listen. Really listen. And just know that anything that is of him will be in alignment with his word. So filter through and hear the voice of God as he reminds you. Ask the question, why don't I pray more? And now enjoy as he responds.